0: The only righteousness that is pleasing to him is his own righteousness. And so therefore, our only hope is to be given his righteousness, to be given that righteousness as a gift. Whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Then verse 8, indeed. Now, I'm reading from the ESV, your translation. If it's not the ESV, probably says something else. Maybe uh, it says uh, instead or whatever or but. Every translation is going to be different there. And here's the reason. That word that that the ESV translates indeed, what Paul does there is he actually piles up five uh, particles. Five particles all together. If we were to translate it literally, it would be like, Indeed, but, yet, therefore, so. I mean, he just literally piles up five particles right together, and he does it in a way that's awkward and doesn't even follow the grammatical rules of the language. Here's why he does it. The word that's translated indeed in the ESV, indeed, if if I were to ask you to take out a pencil and a piece of paper and write a definition for the word indeed... You think you could do it? <laughs> it's a pretty hard word to define. How do you define indeed? It's really hard to put that into words because the purpose of the word indeed is usually this. It usually, we use that word in order to emphasize or add force to what we're about to say after that. That's, that's usually the function that a, a particle like indeed serves, right? So if, if uh, it were to go something like this, here's an example. If I were to say... Boy, um, we sure have gotten a lot of rain lately. Indeed, we've gotten five inches of rain over the past three days. The word indeed tells you, listen closely, because what's going to follow is going to be forceful and it's going to be uh, more powerful. It's going to add power to what was said before. That's usually how we use that word. So what Paul does is he uses five of those words all together in just this mumble-jumble of saying, listen, what is about to follow, I'm going to say this the most powerful way I know how. I'm going to put as much force into this as I possibly can. If we were reading this in the original, we were original Greek speakers and reading this in the original, we would just be surprised at his abuse of the language in order to just... It's like he's twisting our arm, saying, what I'm about to say... I wish I could add 50 exclamation points onto the end of it because that's how I'm trying to say it. I'm trying to put as much force and as much power as I can into it. And what he says after that is, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. I count everything is lost because of the surpassing value, the overwhelming worth, the, uh, the infinite value of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. Now let's think for just a minute on that word knowing. The value, Paul says, of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord, notice the, the, the pronoun my. If you, if you just scan through the passage, it's neat to, to notice how many first person pronouns there are. I think there's about a dozen. I didn't count them, but there's at least a dozen. I, me, mys. In the, this is a very, very personal passage. And so Christ Jesus, my Lord. Not just Christ Jesus, the Lord. Christ Jesus, my Lord. This is, this is probably the most personal passage that Paul ever wrote. So indeed, here's the forceful thing. I count everything as loss. And here's why. Because of the surpassing overwhelming worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. So that word knowing, let's focus on that for just a minute. That's the value. The value is knowing Christ Jesus. So when we say know or knowing in in the English, we can mean two things. We can mean to know something as in know it intellectually, know it factually, we can read a book about something and say that I know this. But there's another way of knowing something, and that's by experiencing it. Now, unfortunately, in the English, one word works for both. No. works both ways. But in the Greek, it's a real help for us because there's two words in the Greek. One means to know things factually or intellectually or mentally. The other word is to know experientially. And so, as you might guess, Paul is using the word here that means to know Experientially. It would be like the difference between um, saying, I know that honey is sweet because I know the chemical makeup of it. I know that there's a high amount of sugar, fructose, whatever is in there that makes it makes it sweet. I know that the composition is something that's going to be sweet to the taste. You can say it, I know that way, or you can say, I know that honey is sweet because I just put a tablespoon in my mouth. That's two different knowings. Or, or you could say, um, I know the law of, uh, of inertia. Who, who came up with that? Was it Newton? Einstein, one of those guys? The, the law of inertia. Who, was is it? Isaac Newton. Okay. So Newton, uh, gave us this law of inertia that, t- that tells us this. An object in motion will remain in motion unless another force acts upon it. Right? We can say, I know of the law of inertia. And it says, you know, that physically if a body is moving through uh, a space, it will continue moving until something else acts upon it to stop it from moving or slow it down or, you know, gravity or some other force, right? We can say, I know that. And so that I know that when a vehicle is traveling 55 miles an hour on the highway and it hits a telephone pole, it was acted upon by another force. And so the inertia of that is going to stop. However, if you're in the front seat, then you're not going to stop until another force acts upon you, which is the dashboard, right? You can say, I know all that, but then you can also say, I know that because I was in the front seat. Two completely different knowings, right? So Paul here says the value, the surpassing value, that which I consider everything else lost compared to is the value of knowing in an experiential way, Jesus Christ, my Lord. So let's skip down now to verse 10. We're not really going to talk about verse 10 because verse 10 is going to come next week. But here's what I want to do. I just want to sort of touch on verse 10 and I want to just show you where he's going with verse 10 in order for you to sort of see it and think about it, pray over it so that God will prepare us to all hear next week this this idea of knowing Christ Jesus in an experiential sort of way. So verse, verse 10, he says... That, now that is the purpose. He says, here's the purpose. The purpose is that, or in order that, I may know him. There's the same word again. I may know him in an experiential sort of way. I may experience him. Now that word, the the verb in there is know, that I may know. And we know that verbs have sometimes... Direct objects Direct objects are, are nouns that they receive the action of a verb. The verb is a, a, a working word. It, it talks about action. But there can be nouns that, that they receive the action of the, of the verb. And so in that sentence, there's three direct objects that I may know in an experiential sort of way, three things. How is it that we know Jesus? How is it that we experience him? and know Him in this way that Paul says is more valuable than anything else in my life? Three things that Paul says. Number one, that I may know the first direct object is Him. That I may know Him in an experiencing sort of way. Not just know facts about Jesus, not just read about Him, not just know the Scriptures about Him, not just hear sermons about Him, but that I may know Him. That's the first direct object. The second direct object is that I may know the power of his resurrection. So next week we'll talk about the power of his resurrection and what Paul means by that in the meantime. Be thinking about what, what could the power of his resurrection be. And then the third thing, the third direct object is a little hard to see because of the way, uh, if you're reading from the ESV, the way it's translated, because they take the direct object noun and they change it over to a verb to make it a little bit easier. They say share. Share is a verb. But that's not how Paul wrote it. Paul, instead of writing share, we could have said the sharing. Or do you know what that word is? It's a word we've talked about a lot. Fellowship. The koinonia. The participation in. The participation in his sufferings, the fellowship of His sufferings. That's the three things that Paul says. Here's the point. Here's the purpose. That I may experience, know by experience, Him, the power of His resurrection, and the fellowship of His suffering. So we'll think about that. We'll let that sort of begin to sink in. Next week we'll come back to that. But now back up to verse 8. Whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count, I continue, I, I uh, go on counting everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing. Now, when we speak of knowing, experiencing, a relational knowing of Jesus, the Bible emphasizes, the New Testament emphasizes the aspect of, of our corporate relationship with Jesus. Jesus and His church. Jesus knows His church. His church know Him. Jesus says in John's Gospel, My people hear My voice and My people know Me, and I know them. Right. The emphasis of the New Testament is on the corporate relationship, the relationship between the bride and the bridegroom. But there are places where the New Testament speaks of the individual relationship. And here's probably the, the primary one. The main place that the New Testament is going to talk about the individual's relationship with Jesus. And that's what Paul's talking about here. A couple of other places in, in our notes I put for us to take a look at, uh, from John 17 verse 3, this, Jesus says, this is eternal life that they know you. Same word, same word, to know in an experiential sort of way that they may know you, the only true God and Jesus Christ whom you've sent. Galatians 4 verse 9, but now that you have come to know God, again, the same word, know God or rather be known by God, how can you turn back again into weak and worthless elementary principles of the world? Or 1 John 4, 8, anyone who does not love God does does not anyone who does not love, sorry, does not know God. Again, the same word. It's not know God in the factual sort of way. It's not anyone who does not love does not know the scriptures about God, or does not know who he is, or has not been told about his character. What John says, anyone who does not love does not know God in a relational sort of way, in a relationship, in an experiencing sort of way. So this is the surpassing value that Paul speaks of, this value of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. All that sort of serves to tease us for verse 10 next week because verse 10 is really where Paul is going to dig in his heels and he's going to dig into this idea of experiencing Jesus Christ on a personal level. Level, But let's, let's continue for now. For his sake, or, or for him, literally, for him I have suffered the loss of all things. So Paul says, for him, he, he doesn't say, for him I gave up all things. For him I suffered the loss. It, it is though, in Paul's mind, it's, it's as though God took them from him. It's as though Paul was saying, I never would have given them up on my own. If it was up to me, I would have clung to those things until judgment day but God intervened in my life and He took them from me, which is so often what God will do in His mercy and in His love and in His grace. So often He will take from us what we think is so valuable and so precious in order for us to see, wait a minute, that that wasn't the thing that was valuable after all. And I never would have seen that had God not taken it from me. It may be, an aspect of our health. It may be a loved one. It may be something in our life. It may be anything, but oftentimes God will take something from us in order for us to see, wait a minute, that's that's not at all what I thought it was. I can see now. I never would have seen it while I had the thing. But Paul, in his mind, it's like God took it. I suffered the loss of all things and I count them as rubbish. We talked about that word last time. We won't go back over it. I count them as rubbish, as garbage, as excrement, in order that I may gain Christ. Verse 9, and be found in Him. Be found in Him. Now, be found in Him is the verb form of the word morphe. You may remember that word. Do you remember it? Back in chapter 2, we talked about it a bunch Because that's the word that Paul uses to describe Jesus' incarnation. You remember that he was found in human form? And so we talked about that what Paul is saying is that Jesus is the outward manifestation of the God that we can't see. So that's the meaning of that word is that it is to show or to demonstrate the real true character that can't be seen. So here's what Paul is saying. That I may be found, or in other words, that I may be demonstrated to have the character that we're going to talk about in just a minute, that I may be seen. In other words, Paul is concerned that others would see this in him. That I may be found not having a righteousness in my my own that we'll talk about in just a second. But Paul is interested in showing this. He wants people to see it. He wants to be found. He wants others to see this this visible outworking of the inner change that has happened to him. And that's why he says that. The the morphe, the visible showing of what you can't see because what you can't see is in my heart. And so Paul says, I want to be found. I want to be seen. I want want it to be demonstrated in my life that that is is what's in my heart. It reminds me of what he says back in chapter 1, verse 27 and 28. Uh, So let the manner of your lives be worthy of the gospel, that whether I come again and see you or I am absent, I may hear of you that you are standing firm and one mind, one heart, and you're not afraid of those who are intimidating you, right? So he's concerned that the Philippians are demonstrating or showing the reality that's in their heart. In the same way here, he says, I want to show, I want to to demonstrate. And what is it that he wants to demonstrate? That... I don't have a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith. That's what he wants to show. It takes me to Romans chapter 10 here in your notes. It takes me to Romans chapter 10 in which Paul says something really similar, right along the same lines to the Romans. Here's what he says in Romans chapter 10. For I bear bear them witness, speaking of the Jews who have rejected Jesus, the, the Jews who have the Scriptures, but yet they don't believe that Jesus is Messiah or that Jesus is for the fulfillment of the Scriptures. He says, I bear them witness that they have a zeal for God. He just talked about a zeal for God, right? He says, nobody was more zealous for God than me. They have a zeal for God, but not according to knowledge. What word do you think he used there? Knowledge by experience. They've got an intellectual knowledge of God. In fact, their intellectual knowledge of God surpasses everybody else. But they don't have an experiential knowledge of God. They, have, they don't know Him because they live with Him. They don't know Him because He lives within them. They don't know Him because they've experienced His life. They know Him because they've studied His Word and they've memorized His Word and they've got all these laws that they live by, but they don't know Him because they've experienced Him. He says, but not according to knowledge for being ignorant of the righteousness of God. That's just what he said to the Philippians. He says, I want to I want the righteousness of God to be shown in me, not my own righteousness. So they're ignorant of the righteousness of God and they're seeking to establish their own righteousness. That's exactly what Paul says. I don't want people to see that. I don't want people to look at me and, and, and think he's got his own righteousness. I want people to look at me and see and say, he's got God's righteousness, not his own. But he says, they're just the opposite. They're ignorant of God's righteousness because because they don't know him. Instead, they work at establishing their own righteousness. They do not submit to God's righteousness for Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. In other words, the law was intended to bring them to Christ. But instead of bringing them to Christ... They have bowed down to the law and made the law their God and the law is their treasure. The law is the pearl of great price for them. And so being so heavily invested in the law and their own righteousness, they're ignorant of God's righteousness. That's the same thing, or at least along the same lines, is what Paul is saying to the Philippians here. He says, this is how I want to be seen. This is how I want to be known. I want to be found not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith. Do you, do you know what it's like to encounter someone whom you just know that they're just self-righteous? They've got their own righteousness. They've got their own set of, and they do pretty good at it. But you just know when you, when you talk with them, when you encounter them, that they are living their life based on a a set of principles, based on a righteousness that is theirs. And we usually view those people as being very judgmental people, don't we? Instead, Paul says, that's not how I want to be seen. I want to be seen as one who has a righteousness from God. Now, the flip side of knowing someone who has their own righteousness is knowing someone who has a righteousness from God. Now, Those who have a righteousness from God, we tend to think of them as being merciful people, forgiving people, gracious people, don't we? And I think the reason for that is because that's exactly what Jesus said. Jesus said, if you have received mercy, you will show mercy. He said, if you have received grace, you will show grace. If you have received forgiveness, you will be forgiving. If you have received grace, you will be generous with your time and with your stuff. And so that's that's what I think Paul is getting at. He wants to be known as a person, not who is judgmentally self-righteous, but is mercifully forgiving, gracious, righteous from God. And then he concludes this thought by saying that this is not a righteousness of mine, but it is the righteousness through faith in Christ. There's a little bit of a difficulty in translation there. It's translated faith in Christ, but it could also be Christ's faithfulness or faithfulness of Christ. Exactly the same words. It could be translated either way. I tend to think that Paul's saying that my righteousness is based on the faithfulness of Christ because my righteousness is based on His faithful life because then he goes on from there to say, "I receive I receive it by faith, because that's the righteousness that depends on faith. But either way, it's getting to the same point. It's not his righteousness, it's Jesus' righteousness. It's given to him. Theologians sometimes call this alien righteousness. It doesn't mean that it comes from extraterrestrials. it just means it's outside of us. that's, that's the meaning of alien, right there's, there's uh, internal, but then there's outside of us, or alien to us. And so theologians will sometimes say that this is an alien righteousness that's not ours, it's from without us, and it's given to us. Or sometimes it's called gift righteousness. And that's what Paul says, because the only righteousness that God will accept is His own. The only standard that God has is Himself. God doesn't have another standard for us. The only righteousness that is pleasing to Him is His own righteousness. That's why Jesus says, Matthew 5, verse 48, You must be perfect as your Heavenly Father is perfect. The only righteousness that pleases God is His righteousness, His perfect righteousness. And so therefore, our only hope is to be given his righteousness, to be given that righteousness as a gift, an alien righteousness from outside of us that's given to us and credited to us. As Paul's going to say in 2 Corinthians 5, verse 21, for our sake, he made him, Jesus, who knew no sin, to be sin so that he could exchange his righteousness for our unrighteousness and do that by faith. And that's where Paul ends up, by faith. By faith is the is the means, is the mechanism. Faith doesn't save anybody. Faith is the means by which God saves you by giving to you, crediting to you the righteousness that's his, and he gives it to you by faith. As Genesis 15, verse 6 says, Abraham believed God, and God credited it or counted it to him as righteousness. So the faith that Abraham had, God sees that faith. And the faith becomes the the conduit through which the righteousness of God is credited to Abraham. Thank you for listening to today's episode of Truth That Transforms with pastor and Bible teacher Jason Wilkerson. Truth That Transforms is the daily teaching broadcast of Disciples Fellowship Church. We invite you to visit our website where you will find more resources to help in your journey of discipleship. You can find us at www.DisciplesFellowshipNC.com or connect with our Facebook page at Facebook slash DisciplesFellowshipNC. Truth That Transforms exists to glorify Jesus Christ through the teaching of His sanctifying and disciple-making Word.